Well, thank you very much for coming today. Um, this is quite a turnout, and it's, it's great to see you all here for another installment of Comparative Media Insights. Uh, and this, this cluster of talks will focus on games. And we're going to kick off with um, Constantine Nagooch, who's uh, one of our colleagues here at, uh, at Gambit. Uh, Constantine has been here since 2009, I think. Is that yep. That's correct. His PhD is from University of Vienna, a dissertation with the intriguing title of Learning, uh, learning by Failure, an Educational Theory of Learning. Um, summa cum laude uh, in the, at Vienna. So that's, as someone who works in the European system, I can tell you that happens extraordinarily rarely. So congratulations on, on, on that. Uh, Constantine has been a pretty prolific writer, uh, author, co-author of uh, some seven books, most in German, um, as befits the, <laughs> the origins of your work. Yep. A lot of articles um, focusing, obviously, on the educational issue, strategies for learning, techniques for learning. And I think someone, your work has really consistently challenged the kind of standard notions of, of uh, how learning takes place in games. Mm -hmm. And what's been really interesting about your work here at, at MIT is you've extended it into actually uh, developing, working with the production of games. Afterlife, uh, a game that you, that a project that you worked on has been recognized. Um, uh, a finalist at the Indie Games sum Summit at uh, GDC in China runner-up for best student game and um, best innovative game at the uh, Meaningful Play Conference in Michigan. So, terrific. So I think without further ado, Constantine, I'll turn the floor over to you. Okay. And, uh, okay. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, yeah. So, um, I just talked to the dean three minutes ago, and she said, well, it's like your birthday today, because you can talk to so many people, and everybody's like showing up for you. So this is like the approach. I'm, I'm very happy to be able to talk about my research. And also, um, I will talk about pur purposeful games and um, design and research. And this is pretty much what I'm mainly interested in right now. Um, you know, um, and you know, thank you for showing up. And I think we have plenty of time today to ask questions. So um, we have so much time, we should probably already start to think about some. Um, so just to give you a little background, I come from Austria, um, country of Sound of Music. Um, I will not sing today. Um, if this is going bad, I might start to sing, and then you know it's not going good. I studied at University of Vienna, and William already said some stuff. Um, I also studied at Humboldt University in Berlin. And um, two things that might be interesting, what I'm doing is I'm also organizing the Vienna Games Conference for five years now. And I'm working for PEGI, which is the Pan-European Game Information, which does the age, rate, age rating for video games um, for um, kids in Europe. And I think, just to give an idea, um, I was working a lot on learning theories, I, but I studied media education. Um, and so when I started to, to think about games, it was really um, from this kind of like typical violence debate. So I was really asked by Austria to write a report on the, on the problematic aspects um, of this topic. And it's interesting how, where I ended up. And if you're, you know, I'd be happy to talk about that further. I right now work at Gambit. Um, most of you, I think here know what Gambit is. So um, we make games and think about them. And, um, you know, I think really everybody, I've seen all of you once, so everybody should know that. And I also worked at the Education Arcade with a fellowship from the Max Cade Foundation in 2009. And yeah, this is pretty much my background. So um, somebody said everybody should be able to write down two sentences, kind of like the nutshell of my research. 
took me two and a half hours and I'm still not happy, but this is what I came up with. Um, I investigate, I'm very interested in meaningful and transformative experiences through playing games. This is pretty much the core of my research, whatever that means. There's a lot, you know, a lot of space here. Um, I'm very interested in design, the assessment, and also um, the research on purposeful games. What purposeful games are is something that you might hear um, in a few minutes. How is my talk structured? Um, first, I'm going to talk about uh, my theoretical framework and my approach to video games. Um, this is going to be like the first um, few minutes of my talk. Then I would like to talk about a research study I did on players' experiences, um, a qualitative study that I did um, two years ago um, that is kind of like leading over to my work and research on afterland or afterlife. <laughs> we can think about that later. Um, a subversive game design project that is based on my theoretical approaches um, and where I also did a player study. And then I will talk about uh, my favorite topic right now, purposeful games, purposeful game design, and, and you know how, what, what is the role of serious games today, where they're heading to. And then um, I'm also asked to talk about the future in this field and the future of my work in this field. Um, so this is what you can expect in the next probably 40 minutes. So what is my approach? Um, you know, when I, when I talk about games, when I think about games, clearly um, the way I was educated is influencing me. So I come from social science. I also studied philosophy and media studies. And I, I wrote my PhD in educational studies, which is a bit different than educational studies here. It's more, you would probably call it uh, philosophy of education. Um, this is my, my background, how I approach games. And there are three um, aspects, three phenomena about video games that I'm interested in. One is player research. Um, so I'm very interested in the player. And I think this is still, um, for me, one of the most interesting parts of, of, of video game studies and something where there is so much more to do um, is who are the players, why are they playing, the motifs to play, and what they get out of their games. The other part is something that I did stronger here at Gambit is subversive game design. I'm going to tell you more about that in a few minutes. Um, so a kind of a, a way of using subversive elements in game design to challenge players' expectations. And the third part is purposeful games and something that other people might call serious games and I sometimes also call them serious games. So what are my theoretical approaches? When I talk about player research, I have more, an, I'm interested in a theory of experiencing and cognition and also in more empirical studies. When I talk about subversive game design and when I research that, I'm more interested in game and media theory but also um, in game studies and in design patterns. And when I talk about purposeful games and I research them, I'm very interested in assessment, I'm very interested in design and also a theory of transformation. I'm also gonna talk a little bit about that. So my talk is pretty much gonna be about these three things and also um, about the intersections. Um, I'm so not happy with, the, with, the, with my graphics, but in my three days I had, I could not do something wilder. So what I'm very interested in um, what is happening in between, and this is pretty much what I do and um, who I am as a game scholar. So first, player research. What is the leading question that I have in mind when I, when I talk about player research? So how do players make meaning of gameplay experiences? Um, how did I approach that? I did a, a study, um, and, and so in my PhD, I was working on transformative learning. So how do people change the way they think um, about themselves, others, and the world? And for a lot of reasons, games can be a very interesting field to have experiences like that. So um, 
of course, I read a lot of theories in that field, and I also published stuff about that. So for instance, I was working on Shadow of the Colossus and researching players of Shadow of Colossus, how that game had an impact on them. But then I was part of um, a study where we played Shadow of the Colossus with a few players. And when the moment came when I was like, oh my god, you know, it's happening, they didn't care at all. They were like, oh, well, I finished the game. Uh, well, there is a little twist, but I don't care. And I was honestly shocked. I realized I have to understand more um, what transformative impacts on players are. And probably my, you know, like just a theoretical approach will not be enough to understand that phenomena. So what I did, uh, I worked on, on, on theories of transformation. So how can we even understand that? Um, Gregory Bateson is one of my favorite scholars here. He might be a colorful bird, but I like him a lot. Um, but also study on, on learning in games, of course. Um, another thing, um, what, is, what does meaningful and passionate experience mean in general? Um, where I focus more on Qi, but also Frasca and, and Bogost. Um, and finally, I try to develop an approach. How can we even understand how players make meaning out of games? And here I use more biographical interviews, um, qualitative studies. Um, I found Mischler and Qi are very useful to develop a concept here. A method that I developed um, to understand and to start the conversation with players is something that I call a playography. Playographies are pretty much um, biographies, playful biographies. So what games are meaningful to you in your life? Which games you know, stick out? Which games would you say um, are really changed the way you think about others and maybe even you know, change the way you think about yourself? And just to give you, give you an idea of, of how this looks, I will give one short example. So for instance, um, I did an interview series um, with CMS students and um, students from MIT and also from Singapore. And this is one of these play biographies, uh, playography. So I, I asked the people to draw a timeline and then to make bubbles um, for games that pop up that appear very meaningful to them. So they pretty much started in, in kind of like doing this bubble drawings, it takes about, you know, like in this case, it normally takes about 30 minutes, 40 minutes to do that. And then I do an interview that is about two hours, really kind of like getting deeper into why is this game important. And um, I just want to highlight this. So for instance, Sarah, she's not really called Sarah because I don't want to, you know, tell you all what, who she is, says, I, I would say that my life would be really different if I'd never played that game. And I think a sentence like that in the interview is, is pretty much when I realized, yes, this is really worth following. because. So we, yes, games have a very, very strong impact um, on a certain part of our, you know, like on our generation and then on, on specific players. So in her case, I also ask which is the most meaningful one. You know, and I was working with like Shadow of the Colossus and Eco and all these like crazy abstract games and she's like clearly Monkey Island. And to understand that you have to understand her life. So in her case, in Sarah's life, she said, you know, um, you grow up and every time you suddenly are in a situation exactly like the Karaka Monkey Island. You want to be a pirate, but nobody knows how you get a pirate, and you, would, you try to be that. You know, you ask people, like, how can I be a pirate? What, what are the rules? And she said, every time in life I, I enter a new social sphere, I'm in that position. What, is, what, is, what does it mean to be a grad student? You know, who tells me what is a good grad student, what is a bad grad student? And every time she says she feels like back in the game, and it helps her to every time she has a crisis and realizes, as well, you know, I studied CMS, um, I'm almost finished, who am I? She's like, well, I'm just trying to be a pirate again and there's gonna be a new pirate, uh, you know, there's not gonna be a new time in my life. So for her, this game helps her to have a certain humor about that. She's always thinking about, you know, where is kind of like the gummy chicken <laughs> that I can use 
Um, where are the crazy objects? You know, when can I fight with another pirate? So, and especially graduation was a moment for her when she feel, felt, yeah, again, completely this game. And, you know, another um, game that she, for instance, talked about um, was Little Big Planet. And in that case, it was not so much about the narrative in the game. It was more about the community that she was playing with. It really meant something for her. She realized every time she comes to a new place, games are her media form to communicate with others. So therefore, certain experiences in life really shape her understanding of herself and others. So um, what are kind of like the central results of this study? Um, very important for me, yes, players have deep and meaningful experiences in games. Um, but every playography is unique and highly dependent on the context. And like, um, if I repeat myself about this one, this is probably the core result of my research. Context matters so much. And it is crucial for research and it is a pain because that means that what players make out of games is so much dependent on who they are, where they are in their life, their culture, their affinity group they're in, and also the media form they use and the setting they play in. You know? So I also do educational game studies and every time you go to a school and research a game, you just have to look at the teacher and you pretty much know what's going on. And often the, the whole experiment can be like forgotten in the moment you get there because you know the kids <coughs> do this because they know otherwise they would have to do math. You know? So and they're like, yeah, whatever. You know? and, and then I come with my research. So um, this is a problem, a very interesting problem that um, I will probably spend a lot of time with in the next um, years. Games can be triggers, um, but um, it's not that easy. So what are the open questions for me? I really, in this study, just looked at, at, at games and biographies. I didn't talk about different media forms. And I realized in the interviews, they also talked a lot about the television experiences. <coughs> also, you know, what is happening right now on the internet, different social media forms. So it would be interesting to open it up to different media forms too. Um, and also to develop a framework. I realized these playographies, these drawings were very useful to start a conversation. And I've used it in different studies now. And other people, like there's a woman uh, in Texas that is making an iPad version for it um, because she thinks it's useful for her, for her research. And I think it will be worth going on and developing that further. And of course, um, the cultural context. I was really looking at MIT students, which is a specific group, you know. Um, so it would be interesting what if we go to groups that don't have access to media or to technici technical media or maybe different educational um, backgrounds. And for instance, also different forms of play. So um, in the next month, I'm going to do this study with sports video game players and, real, and try to find out how playing sports, watching sports, and playing video game sports are colliding. You know, why are you playing for a certain team and not for the other? What does that mean to you? When you, are you playing? And who are you playing with? And um, of course, I'm still interested in these trigger moments. Um, this, is, this is difficult. But one trigger moment I'm specifically interested in is still um, this aspect, William mentioned it, you know, I wrote my PhD about learning through failure. So this, I realize in the talks it is often about a certain crisis, a failure, an irritation that is often leading to a new perspective. Um, so, and this leads over to the second part of my research, which is subversive game design. So um, through the study, I really realized, well, okay, this is more complicated than I hoped. Um, no, um, there are a lot of complex aspects that interfere with these biographies. But why don't we just look at one aspect and let's look at irritations and failures in games. And that led over to a project where the main research question was how can we design a game that forces the player to overcome prior expectations and judgments. And that is something that we worked on at Gambit um, almost like two years ago now. Um, just a little bit of the background of all of this. 
one of my favorite game theories is still um, Suits' um, approach to games, and he's saying playing a game is a voluntary attempt to overcome <coughs> unnecessary obstacles. Interesting part about it, you could say life is pretty much the involuntary attempts to overcome necessary obstacles. And this is why we have so much fun to overcome unnecessary <laughs> obstacles in real life and games. And, and you know, there are not a lot of people here that can say, well, I really like to be challenged in life, you know? I really like these irritations and crises. You know, it's so interesting. I love when my partner is kind of like dismissing me, you know, um, when I'm offended by others, so interesting. Um, there are some people out there, um, but most people pretty much like to have certain expectations about a, uh, an experience and they want it to be affirmed and that's what we pretty much do almost all our, our days long so is it possible to use the game space um, in all its openness to give the player experiences about irritations and failure and crises and maybe um, what does that mean for them in real life is there something that they can take out of it um, can be used games for that and theoretically that is very interesting empirically we don't know a lot about that so we kind of like had this idea of using it the theory is um, something that is in German called umlernen um, in, in English I would call it recursive learning based on um, my PhD that is a lot about Aristotle and Bacon um, Edmund Husserl um, and also Günther Puck which is like the, the German um, um, Edmund Husserl um, in education. Um, and the other part was, you know, can we use this recursive learning that is like a circular process of restructuring experience patterns? So kind of like I have a certain expectation about something, it is challenged in, a, in an experience and I restructure that. And just to give you an example, a recursive learning experience that is very limited but that I have every day, I come from Europe. In Europe doors opened, you know, differently than here, especially when you try to lock them. So in Europe, when I lock a door, I make this, you know, totally clear because I lock the door. Here, every day I open my door, I have to go, wait, I open the door like this, which is closing in, in Europe. And it's really interesting in how hard it is for me to have a recursive, a, a successful recursive learning um, process with that. If I'm highly concentrated, it would not be a problem, but I really have to think, no, no, wait, I'm in America. Today, when I left my home and had this talk, I was like, what the hell is going on with my door you know and I've been living here for two years and this is just a very basic form of recursive learning but another example is for instance you know um, an illusion a disillusionment can be very productive so even if your partner leaves you because he or she doesn't like you it hurts a lot but in, in terms of your relationship it's probably a good thing to happen the moment you realize that it hurts but disillusionments are from a learning perspective very very productive very useful for you they kind of like show you what was really happening and not what you expected to happen. So we, Matt and I, Matt Wise and I worked on this concept of applying the theory to games and we call that subversive game design. So what if we make a game where we subvert certain patterns that players are completely used to and confront them with that? Are they able to think differently um, about the game? But do they also catch themselves being completely biased? Um, that was pretty much the research question. And um, one thing that I think was very interesting about Afterland in for, for me as a researcher, there is a, a research-based cycle of the design. So first, this whole thing started up um, with designing the, the game. So Afterland, um, I will not, I will I give you some example about Afterland in a minute. So we designed the game called Afterland. Um, it is a platformer. Um, it is designed to get players out of their routines and make them rethink their expectations. And it, the goal of the game was to you know make them question their habits and i just want to show you um 
a quick pattern that we used. So for instance, when you start the game after land, you're this small creature and you find a list in the forest and the list is kind of like from a, from a different world. And there are certain elements on this list. It pretty much looks like a catalog um, of, of electronic items. And you have this empty house and there is kind of like this bar building up here. And if you really see, you know, maybe it's a bit of a weird bar. Um, and you go out in this world and you collect items um, and there are enemies that look at you. The interesting thing is if you collect all items, it looks pretty much like this. So as you are not players, you go like, okay, what is, you know, like they're all broken, it's trash, you know? So it's pretty easy to see that all these items, the house looks awful. Like even you can see the walls, like you really live in a horrible place full of mess. Interesting part about is, do players realize that? Every time they get, an, they get three objects, they have to bring them back to the house. Are they able to think about that and realize, wow, like I'm pretty much collecting trash and why am I doing that anyway? Um, and there is a different part about the game. So there are these other creatures out there in the forest and all they do is look at you. Um, and when they look at you, this bar is going down. As a player, you would clearly say, well, it's a life bar. But in this game, it's pretty much your embarrassment meter. It's like, you know, if they look at me, all that is happening is that this is going down. And as a player, we're completely clear, okay, I don't, I don't want to be whatever this guy is doing. I don't want to be part of that. If you have a certain experience that your life bar goes down or you stay at the person, you realize, well, he's not your enemy, he's your friend. So he was always your friend, um, and all he did was looking at you, and he was questioning you collecting trash. And the interesting question for us was now, well, you know, are players getting that? How are they thinking about that, and what impact does it have on them? So based on this, we also included a research-based cycle. So yes, I already talked about there was a theoretical approach behind that. We applied it on games, developed something that we call a subversive game design catalog. So we looked at different games, again, like Shadow of the Colossus, but also September 12 or Ulitsi Dimitrova. So we had a catalog of about 20 games. Where we looked at subversive um, design aspects. Then we started prototyping with a, in the summer with a team of students from Singapore and from MIT and RISD. Um, and very important, of course, was playtesting. So for instance, in the first concept, you see very small here, maybe in the back, not at all. We had this nerd character in like a big pullover. And the first playtest, it was very interesting. So the nerd said, oh my God, I don't want to play this game. This is awful, you know? Like they, they could clearly see that this is like about a nerd. The non-nerds were like, I don't want to play a nerd. So it was like a lose-lose situation. So we clearly <laughs> saw we would get rid of the nerd concept. We, get, we also had more with better <coughs> equipment. So we realized, no, like let's take something more abstract. Um, and then um, we developed the concept further and um, out there came Afterland. And then um, I evaluated um, the impact of this game on players. I did a study on that. And then I came back to the table and had to change my theory. And here I am. Um, so what are, what are the, the results of this? This subversive game design catalog was very important to us to communicate the idea of the game to the students. I, I realized, you know, I also gave a talk and they were like, what is this guy talking about? Then I gave them the catalog of the game, the elements, and they were like, oh, you mean this? I get it. You know, so the ca catalog was very useful for us to talk to the students and help them understand the theory. The game also won some prizes, um, which means that some people like the game. I did four group interviews and 40 single interviews um, with players, and also did screen recordings. And here are my findings. About one out of two understood the twist. Also saying one of two didn't understand the twist at all, just played the game through. 
And um, about one out of four started to restructure the way they think. So they had this moment on the twist and were like, okay, well, I'm collecting trash. Maybe I should give that up and maybe they're my friends and then you can collect friends and bring them home. Um, that also means that three out of four did not have that experience. Um, and only one out of 10, and you know, like uh, ha have a study, um, I'm writing a study right now on that. One out of 10 would tell me a story where they're like, well, I know that experience, you know. Um, some would say, well, I, I order on Amazon a lot that I never look at. Others were like, well, you know, I have also problems of, you know, sometimes if, if I start collecting something, I don't stop, I don't question my behavior anymore. But it also means, again, when I do the, did the interviews, I realized it's about the context. It's because they already had a problem in real life and they could use the game to kind of like channel their experiences in the game and then they could suddenly talk about it. But again, so much up to the context. Context matters. Um, so from the other study I did, yes, transformative experience happen. Um, a game can be a door opener if the person brings a certain context in, but games are not tools for change. That's the one thing I really realized. And this kind of like led over to the third topic that I want to talk about, purposeful games and or serious games. So what if these games are designed to, ha to have an impact on the player and to, to kind of like foster change? Because um, I couldn't really do that. Um, so I was interested in how do they do that? Um, so how to assess purposeful serious video games um, and what impact do they have is kind of like my driving question right now in my research. Just to give you an example, I think all of you know serious games, but for instance, Global Conflict Palestine is a game um, where you play um, in Palestine. You can choose, do you want to be a Palestinian, an Israeli, or an American journalist? You interview um, characters in that field, and you try to write newspaper articles about the findings. And it is a lot about the Palestine-Israel conflict and you know, helping the students to develop a new approach to this conflict. So you know, the idea is clearly to use a game to help solve this conflict and to also teach them how to be journalists. But does it really have an impact? Did it really solve anything? Did it really change anything? Or did any of these players really get out of this game and say, wow, now I really have a new perspective on it? And furthermore, does it make you more peaceful? You know, are these games really designed? So you know, there is this big Games for Change thing out there, a serious games initiative. Do games make you more peaceful? Like, it's a good question. So this is pretty much the narrative that is out there. And you can find a lot of, for instance, Ma um, Jane McGonigal, um, a book I can recommend, Reality is Broken, will give you that argument and say, yes, games can change the world. It can make this world a better place. Um, so in my approach, I realized, how can I even do that? Um, how, can I, how can I research that? And the first thing for me was assessing serious games. Um, so what we do right now um, at Gambit, um, we assess serious games for social change. Um, together with, with Nada um, Alvarado, who's sitting back there, we, had a, we kind of like found 160 games about social change. And we are now analyzing them in terms of their design, in terms of how they communicate it, what they do, what they pretend to do, and kind of like trying to come up with a list of, of games that are most promising <laughs> for even researching. And I'm saying that because I have, there are very little studies about the impact of these games. But the funny thing is there are games about impact of, um, there are studies about impact of games where the games don't work. And what I find very interesting, so for instance, Dafur is Dying, which is a very, very interesting series of games about Dafur, and you can play a kid, and you try to get water, and then you get hit by a car. And it was sponsored by MTV, and it's 
it's a very interesting approach, the second level doesn't work. You know, so the second level really has issues in gameplay mechanic. There, it's not finished. So I was wondering, well, guys, how did you how did you get kids playing this game? Especially because the second level doesn't work, and without the second level, the first level doesn't make any sense. And they were like, well, we have empirical data that shows that our you know. And so I realized, no, no, we have to really understand what is out there and which games are useful. Um, another thing that I try to do is I realize that this narrative about um, serious games is not so much from the people who really do these games, make these games, but more from politics and also from like sports, spokespeople like, uh, you know, like McGonagall or, or the media. So one thing that I'm doing right now is interviewing serious game designers and asking them, what do you think, what impact does your game have and how do you, how do you know and what do you go for? And I, I just did an IP class. Um, so, and, and you know, it was very interesting to hear how they think about their games and also realizing that they have a very different understanding of what their games can do or probably not do. Um, and I think it's important to give these people their voice. And um, furthermore, uh, I want to do an empirical study on, on serious games. So uh, right now I'm pretty much, I've just finished a grant um, proposal for doing a long-term quantitative and qualitative study on these impacts. And um, as you might already notice, this is gonna be tricky. So um, I see a lot of potential, but honestly, I think it's time to make a really good study here, um, an honest study. Um, so this is happening right now, and this is something that will be like probably a two or three year project um, in the future. So um, when we talk about, in the first part, about the assessment of games, um, in the beginning, we, we came up with this list and we started to play games and we were like, hey, I like this game and, you know, and I don't like this game. And I realized this is not an approach we can really use. Because you know, some people li like a game and some don't. We really have to try to assess them in different form. And what we came up with is uh, something that we call a serious game assessment framework and that we change every two days. Um, this, is, this is the last version from yesterday, 8 o'clock at night. Um, and what is it, what is it about? Um, this part is pretty much what you find in most games. Or maybe just this part. Um, so the aesthetics, the graphics, the narrative and fiction, the mechanics. Yeah, this part. So um, this is what you normally find in, in you know, like how to, how to design a game, how, when, when is the game interesting. We realized in educational games it's a lot about the content. So it's about you know, what content am I using in this game. And when we come to serious or how I would call them purposeful games, it's a lot about the purpose of this game. And what I'm trying to show here is that the purpose um, to have an impact beyond the game itself on real life is what makes these games special, and that's what they have to prove. You know, I think it is quite cynical to say, well, we make games for, so for change, um, and this, we're talking about a, million, a few million dollar industry here, but we don't know anything if it, if it really works or not. You know, we, we, don't, we don't even have a lot of research going on in that field, which is problematic. So um, what we try to do is we look at these games and see you know, how um, is the coherence between the elements of this game in, in relation to the purpose of the game? So how is the purpose even channeled in all these design elements? And is the whole thing um, cohesive? And that might, in a, in a normal entertainment-oriented game, cohesiveness of design elements is something people just do and they know what they, if they know what they're doing. Serious games kind of like sometimes manage to say, you know, I have this really nice content and now we need a little bit of sugar about it. You know? so, so why don't we make it a bit more fun and use a little bit of a mechanic or a little bit of a narrative. So that's what serious games or often educational games too did um, um, or still sometimes do and I think it's very problematic. You have to have a very um, cohesive game system 
to make a very interesting game. And yes, the purpose has to be channeled, channeled in it. Um, so we look at the formal conceptual design, and, but we also know, and, it's, and I discuss a lot um, with my colleagues, this is one approach. So this is the start. So first, it's interesting to look at the design and think about how are these games designed. But this is just the start to now re to then search what these games mean to players, because that is not said, even if you have the coolest game. Um, and one thing that I realized is we hardly have any methods of researching the impact of games. Um, it's very hard to develop, you know, we don't even have methods to research change in lives of players too much. So what, you know, and, sp and with sp specific products, this is a very, very tricky question. Um, and, you know, people like um, Flanagan, also Ian Bogost, kind of like started this narrative of that you can design for change. So for instance, Flanagan is saying that by creating simulated environments, the players are able to step away and think critically about the problems of the game. Well, really, like, is this, is this true? Um, I, I know some of you might have that, had that experience in a certain game, but we don't really know it on an empirical basis. And I think we should, we should know it. So, um, what will I, wh the thing I will not talk about right now is the worst case examples, um, but I just want to say that we found them. So one are, are the chocolate-covered broccoli games. Not fun, not healthy. Um, they are the ones, you know, good content, and, you know, um, let's just put something fun about that. The other thing that we found quite often are something I would call propaganda games. Um, that these are games that have a very one-sided message. Um, they can be indoctrinational, or I would like to call it e-doctrinational, using technology for indoctrination, in the sense of they pretty much have one thing they want to tell you, and they want you to think that thing after playing the game. That can be good, for instance, September 12th, it's very clear what the statement is, you know, um, bombing terrorists might not be the solution to, you know, solve a conflict. But it can also be that, you know, a certain NGO is trying to want to make you um, just, you know, donate money for them and not really get you involved in the problem. And a third um, kind of like serious game case that we found that I will not talk about too much is deceptive serious games. And that is my biggest problem. These are games with two different messages that are conflicting. I'll give you one example. Um, the Peter Packet game, Fighting Global Poverty. Maybe no, none of you beside the ones, beside the students that I worked with might have played this game. Um, this game is beautiful. So you play Peter Packet and, um, and yes, you can, sail, you can save the world and fight global poverty in this game. You have different venues. You can go to Haiti or Zimbabwe or India, and you will learn to have specific problems. And now you, as Peter Packet, can help them. How, how do you help them? It's a platformer where you are the email. So you are part of the email, and you have to go through this platformer. And what you realize, if you're an email, what we really recommend you to do is have a Cisco client. Because Cisco clients make sure that the emails really get to the places that need your help. And this game is using the seriousness of this problem to pretty much make marketing about Cisco. Fun fact about this is the NetAid, um, some of you might know that, is um, like an NGO that came up that is today that lead over to Games for Change, which is today this big NGO that is promoting serious games and with very, you know, um, promising people and like big keynotes and, and, I, and I like these people but if this is a problematic start of something um, and again also an interesting research field I want to give two best practice examples that I I'm very I'm happy that they that are out there and I think it will be interesting to research them one is the cat and the coup um, the cat and the coup is a game where you play the cat 
of Mosadek. And the interesting part of this game is it is very confusing. Why is it confusing? You start um, with Mosadek's death and you play his cat and you go back in history through different episodes of his life when the Americans and the British try to change Iran and they try to get rid of a guy who said, well, um, I don't want to have people taking my oil and we want to have it, um, you know, um, for Iran. And they pretty much, you know, got rid of him. And so you just play his cat, you follow the history. And when we interviewed the designers, they said, you know, this is like a, a new form of a critical documentary. So we, we, we want the player to play this game and start to question what the hell is going on here. This is part of an untold history that you don't learn in history classes too much in America. So they thought like, what if we make this game and you can get parts of the history, but you really have to start, what they want you to do is get curious about what is going on with Mossadegh and what is the involvement of the Brits, the Brits and the Americans. So the interesting thing for us was also that this idea of making people curious about what happened in history is related, it's coherent with the purpose of the game. So the game is in, any, in every design element is reflecting on that. Is it in the art, in the, con uh, in the context, in the, in the narrative, in the mechanics, everywhere, it is all about that. And furthermore, uh, it is very cohesive. And what I am most interested in this game is, this game does not teach you an answer. It doesn't say this is the problem. It really raises a question. If you play this game, you're so confused afterwards. And I, I also realize some people are like, yeah, whatever. A lot of people want to understand what happened here and they start researching on the internet and trying to find out why do I not know too much about that history and why do I think Iran is so bad and um, Americans you know, um, have to be worried about Iran. Why don't we know what, they, what impact they had on who, what Iran is today? And another game that I, I thought was um, very promising is um, Sweatshop. Um, completely different game. So Sweatshop is more kind of like a casual game. And what you do in Sweatshop is you are the manager of a sweatshop. And you can see here, you can hire kids, which are very cheap. Um, and you can, you can hire more experienced workers, which are more expensive. Um, and then you can decide, um, you know, do I want to buy water? Um, if I buy water, um, they don't get hurt. If I don't buy water, they even might die because of dehydration. Do I want to buy restrooms for them? And the interesting thing in the beginning, it's very simple. You get products in here and you have a boss who tells you, you know, we need 80 pieces of this fashion stuff. Um, in the next, you know, 120 something. And you better make sure that this is happening, otherwise they're gonna fire all the people. So you think in the beginning, you're like, yeah, you know, I'm a good guy. Um, although I realize some people don't think that, and they're like, how many kids can I employ? But you're trying to find a solution here. And then the next level comes, it's like, well, you did 80. Why don't we do 90 now? And by the way, from now on, why don't we just use kids this time? And the game involves you in the problem that sweatshops face. And what I love about this game is um, it is, what they, what they manage to do is they don't give you a solution to the problem. You know, they don't say sweatshops are bad. They say, well, look at this. We all live from sweatshops and this is how they are run. And look how easy it is to get kind of like sucked into this mechanic. Um, when we look at the design, it is referencing an unfair system. So they search for a system that is almost already working like a game and, and they reference that. And what is very interesting, this is one of the only serious games I found that people like to play after I finished researching them. They're like, oh, I, and, and, and they really do. So people really go home and start playing this game because they want to know what happens and they want to you know, see what is going on. 
And what is also interesting, if you finish a level, your boss comes up and he's quite, quite an asshole to be honest. So he's always like telling you, you know, um, he's making like really dirty jokes about you. He's mistreating workers all the time. But he will tell you, you know, if you, if you did good or not, he gives you medals. So if you get a lot of gold medals and a lot of good support by your boss, your karma is also going completely down. So you have two different feedback systems. <laughs> you know, you can be very successful um, as an owner and make a lot of money. You can, for instance, increase the speed of, of, of the band. Or you can also, you know, start to question that and, and try to educate your kids, for instance, but your boss will not like that. And, you know, it's, it's funny how you suddenly are in the middle of exactly that problem. And... Um, it is simulating the vicious cycle of sweatshops. And when we interviewed the designers, they, they said, you know, in the beginning, they thought, well, we clearly have a problem with sweatshops, but the more they researched it, they also found, well, um, but if we really get rid of them, all the people really get fired, and in some countries, kids really work, you know, and so they would go to a new factory, and it is very complicated. And, um, and I think it's a very interesting game as a conversation starter about, you know, a, a lot of things that you can do with this game. So... What are the insights that are my takeaways from, from this purposeful game field? So these games are clearly designed to have an impact beyond the game, beyond the purpose of the game, like for just entertainment or engagement, to impact the players' lives. Um, and, and one thing, like, it is, even when we talked to the designers, they were often way more clever than most of the marketing people. They were like, yeah, we don't really know. But when you ask them, so what if your game doesn't have any impact? They will all say, well, then, then, I, then I lost. You know, like, if people play this game and don't care at all, that's not what I want to. I really want the people to start thinking about a specific problem differently. Um, so, yes, I think um, the cohesiveness of the game system and the coherence with the purpose is relevant. For instance, we don't want to have double communication. If I play the Cisco game, what I really learn is how an email probably is, you know, and I really learn about Cisco. I don't learn anything about poverty and how to solve problems. And I think it's very dangerous to kind of like pretend that these are the serious games we want our kids to play. Um, on the other hand, um, this idea of conveying messages is something that we also have to get rid of in terms when you talk about computer games. Um, the players are the ones that make meaning out of a game, dependent on their context and their bi biographical um, relation. And I know this, this means that things get very messy and complicated, but it could also mean, you know, so maybe we have to think about how to get the context of the players in. You know, that means maybe we have to change the setting. Maybe we have to have a facilitator that is working with the players on something. Or maybe that also means, you know, for some people that game might be it and for others not. And um, what is most striking for me as a researcher is um, if there are f about, there are a handful of studies. And when I look at them, I'm not happy with any of them. Um, I sometimes see that they're hinting in the right direction. But I never found a study where I'd say, well, that really proved that this game really has an impact on social change. We have some health games or even like educational games where we say, well, that really had a change on informational learning, that had a change on, for instance, health or be behavior even. But when we talk about social change, that's a deeper thing. That's, that's about transformative learning. And, um, and I, I have not seen a study yet that convinced me. And methods, how do we even research that will be a big challenge um, for us in the future. So. Now I'm going to um, step over to the last part of my talk, which is the future challenges that I see and also in my research. So the first thing is in relation to player research. Um, I think um, it will be very interesting to go on develop methods here. Um, so I think the, the playographies will be interesting to, to develop that further and use it um, also with different media forms. And, um, 
and kind of like establish that method. I realized it's something I should definitely um, work on further. And I think it is, you know, when I used it the first time, I thought it's really just a conversation starter for the interviews. I realized it was really helpful and you also have specific data that you can use in your study. And the combination I think is interesting. And as I said, uh, for me right now, sports video games might be a very interesting field because we can, for instance, look how sports, watching sports and playing sports intervene. Like, um, what does that mean to the player and to their biographies? And again, I also think um, when I say player research, I think also the developers, game developers, are a very interesting research field um, where we have to learn more about. And one thing that I'm going to come to when we, I talk about purposeful games, what I found in the research, the person who has the most transformative learning experiences are the designers. Because they are the ones that suddenly, they spend a lot of time with the problem, researching it, trying to come up with a mechanic, play testing it. And, and in the end of, of, of the game, they are experts on that problem. And often they realize, well, I was quite biased in the beginning. And now look how complex this problem got. Um, so I think this is a very interesting field. Um, we are also working on a sports video games book. Um, we're just kind of like um, um, agreeing with the, with the publishers on the, on the, on the contracts. Um, so in 2013, um, Abe Stein and Mir Consalve and I will edit a book about sports video games. And in this one, I'm going to use the study um, and, and you know, analyze players more. Um, the second part um, of my, of my um, research and that I want to focus on is game design. So um, definitely, I found that the subversive game design catalog was something that people were very interested in. And this approach as games as subversive games is something that has kind of like potential in future. It would be worth um, developing that further. Um, and also design games with meaningful conflict. So still, I'm very interested. I still believe that conflicts, meaningful conflicts, can be a very interesting element in a game to get the player out of the way they think. Um, and um, I believe that especially working at Gambit for, for the time that I'm here now and at Education Arcade, I think we still have to go on developing a research-based design circle. So we often design games that pretty much stay a bit under-researched because there is a lot going on. And um, I think to develop that further and really say, you know, especially when we say um, applied humanities, social science and games, how do we even research games? And what does it mean, for instance, to come with a research question, design a game, and, and, and measure the impact? There are not a lot of games out there that really did that. And I think it's worth going on. And definitely, um, so we published two papers on that. But I think it's worth developing that further and also talking to other researchers. And definitely, the core piece of my future research will be purposeful games research. Um, I want to do a quantitative study on um, and purposeful games. So um, I'm right now working with the University of Rotterdam. They are the ones that did the study with the bad games. And they're very interested in now on our best practice examples of games. And we're going to develop a bigger quantitative study and do that um, probably starting in two or three months. But I believe um, that you need to have a method mix. And I definitely want to do qualitative um, study too. Um, and I think um, a very important thing is, when we come back to the question, how do you even study that? Um, if we talk about deep and purposeful change, that means that's not, probably not something you have two minutes after playing the game. Um, so it will be very interesting to probably do a study after the game, but also coming back to the players uh, you know, maybe a year later. And it also honestly could mean that we find there is no impact. Um, I think we might also find it's very complicated. And it's not just the game. It is part of a big media. Um, experience is part of a, a lifetime. It's part of who these people are and, and how, they have, how they are conflicting in life or not. Um, I think the framework is interesting. We found it's a very interesting approach for us to discuss games, to assess games. 
So I definitely want to go on working on that and develop that further. And um, as I mentioned, if the designers are the ones that have the most transformative experiences, why don't we, instead of making games for kids or for the third world, go there and make the games with them? Because that means that they develop a different perspective about their problems. And um, again, like that's something I mentioned here, this notion of we develop games for the third world is anyway uh, a quite interesting concept. You know, um, are we really the ones that have to go there and, and save the world for them? And then they realize that in the end, their economical system is you know, ruined by us. Um, that's a bit cynical, I think. So um, I think there is potential here. And um, um, in summer, um, so in spring, definitely, um, with Sarah and Scott, we're going to work on a new game project called Gamouflage. That's just a working title. It might be even horrible. <laughs> Um, which will be, uh, will be a game about camouflage. So it will be a game where you think your, 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 your partner, you, it's going to be a multiplayer series game. I also think we don't have enough multiplayer series games. We, most of the time, single players. It will be a game where you think your friend is your enemy and you're going to fight against him and you're going to ruin the system by that. So the only way to overcome that is to start working together. Question is, can you do that? Would you suddenly realize that your enemies, maybe your friend, and you come up with solutions together. So this is in a very early stage, and hopefully we can work on this in the summer, but that depends on different solutions, and also if we can do that technically. Um, so this is pretty much what I want to work on um, in the next years, and um, I'm right now talking um, to um, a publisher. They asked me to write a book about transformative experiences in video games, um, and I definitely want to do that. I'm just trying to figure out if I have enough time. Um, to really spend on that book, but I would love to do that. And I think um, there's not too much research on transformative experiences in video games, and I think it is an interesting thing. And, um, and that pretty much was it. Thank you very much for your time. Constantine, thanks. That was really a terrific uh, presentation. So um, there's a mic because this is being recorded. It doesn't amplify, so speak loudly, but use the mic. Hi, thanks, Constantine. You're welcome. Um, I had a few questions related to playographies, yeah. Yeah. actually, and I'll just start with one. Yeah. So when you say when you said games yeah. in this talk, you pretty much are talking about computer and video games. Yes, definitely. And every example that you used was that, including one that you created yeah. and yeah. Uh, the, all the ones that you studied. But I noticed in the playography yeah. that uh, people had other sorts of games, yes. Settlers of Catan, yeah. Mahjong, which might have been computerized yeah. or not. But um, and uh, one of the things that, that made me wonder is um, <coughs> how this particular perspective of a playography sort of slices and situates what a video game is. Um, there's, uh, there are several aspects to video games. Yeah. Jesper Yule's Half yeah. Real is about this, yeah. the nature of the fictional world and the rule system. Yeah. Um, another way that's related would be to talk about you know, sort of digital media or computer programs yeah that also are playable or yeah. that have uh, that you can yeah. win that ha you know and and um so i'm wondering doing this uh, playography and saying let's talk about uh, game experiences yeah. of all sorts um why not s ask people what their experiences um computationally what their yeah. experiences on the computer the network computer um were like and see how video games yeah. fit into that I, First of all, I totally agree. So when I did the interview, I just said games. I didn't say video games. And from the interviews I did, a lot of people mix up board games or you know, like um, and also simulations in in that bigger picture. So I totally agree. I would definitely open that up. But also, like, 
it's it's not just opening up, but really thinking about the transitions. And um, so there is, uh, for instance, a, a PhD student in Texas, and she's now using that, and she's interested in physics. People that are physics students, um, what made them get where they are? What elements are there? And she's like opening up. So she's, for instance, looking at simulations. She's also looking. She has this theory that that simulations and experiments can be a very important part to make people curious about physics. But she's that's what she's using for. So I think I totally agree. I think. You have to open it up, and um, and that's the reason why I think I think it's worth working with that further. Like, I, and and that was just one one way to do that. And um, and like in the interviews, they also, as I said, talked a lot about, for instance, television shows. They would say, "Oh, I remember playing that game. That was the time where I always watched Elf or something, you know." And then, and you, and and so it was also interesting in in, in what that meant. Um, so I I can, I can just agree. It would be interesting to do that. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. My question is uh, about transformation, yeah. I guess, and, and how we understand change. I mean, it's a, it is, it's a very complicated yeah. question, and it's, it's sort of dogged social theory and psychology yeah. theory at uh, all times. And I think because it is such a complicated question, I, I think I thought the playography mapping was very interesting, and it reminded me of this group I saw in Japan about a year ago where it's college students uh, counseling high school students, yeah. especially poorer high school students in, uh, in Japan. And they did a similar thing from mm -hmm. map your life. But the way they did it was to map how you felt about your life. Yeah. So when you felt good and when you felt bad and, and to then focus on those transition points to yeah. try to help students assess what were the things that helped them get out of, you know, what dips in their lives and also what you know often the things that bring you from a happy point to a not happy yep. point are things you can't control so then the question is really what helps you get up out of that in order to analyze what it is in your life that makes a change for the better um, so I, I guess my question then is you know how how you think of transformation yep. I mean I guess one of the as I hear purposeful games I mean I, I like it it's great serious games terrific but but how it, it seems to me one of the problems is we're talking about all different kinds of purposes, aims and goals yeah. here. And, and I was also struck by the, you know, there was an old FCC uh, commissioner talking about television saying, you know, well, all television is educational. Uh, yeah. The question is what it teaches. Um, yeah. And I think that's true of games as well. I mean, they all have an impact, uh, if nothing else, uh, an impact in terms of taking up your time that you would otherwise be doing something else. I mean, I think that's, in fact, a fundamental impact that we don't talk about with games. Uh, and instead, so I guess that's, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about how you think about transformation. And, and of course, since there's so much transformation, where would you want to start in trying to understand yeah. but which kinds of transformations are you most interested in? So um, a very important question, definitely. So. Funny thing is, so uh, from my uh, what I did in my PhD was developing a, a, a theory of of pretty much change in the sense of transformation of perspective. So, so how can we even theoretically understand that? And de and definitely it came up that that um, if in life you develop a certain it's funny. So in German it's called horizon of experience. Um, Americans don't like horizons too much. They call it body of experience or so something that you kind of like build up. Although even the concept is weird because. Your body is very your body of experience is changing so much, and um, so it's very hard to even understand the theoretical concept. But it is about developing patterns and structures to to read and understand life. And then the theory would be that in a certain moment you conflict with that pattern and you have to restructure it and develop it further. That's the theory of it. So um, first of all, I really like the idea of, of making that like you know like 
because, for instance, these interviews were very, so the reason why I changed the name is that they were really deep. Like, you would get to points I didn't want to go to, you know, so. You have to, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, or even, you know, like, um, as a teenager, I was very lonely, and, and it was not a good time in my life. And for certain reasons, that game was there. And so, you know, it, it really means something to me and, and it kind of like helped me. The interesting thing is that I realized that I'm also a bit biased through that in my head. So what you see here, these structures. So um, I don't even talk about that in my research anymore. My idea was that there are transitions of phases in your life. I didn't tell the, the, the interviewers how to structure. I said, can you please structure the timeline? And some said, first girlfriend, second girlfriend, third girlfriend. Other people said, schools, other people said very lonesome, not so lonesome anymore, superstar. So it was also interesting to see <laughs> how, they, how, they, how they structured their lives. Um, and I, I had the idea that in these transition phases, games have a specific role. It turns out, no, not really, not really. So for some people, yes. So for instance, um, so, so for instance in, in not, not so much with Monkey Island, um, but in a later time, for instance, here comes Little Big Planet, and here in that interview, she says she, as a Monkey Island character, is always very afraid to come in a new environment, and she is not a person that is very good in communicating with others. But games help her. So Little Big Planet is meaningful because in this new phase, and she suddenly realized, wow, look, I'm gonna be finished in two months. I really need a new game because I need to new, I need, need a new group of people to play with. Uh, on the other hand, I had people that where these crisis moments um, were not so important to what they played. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't see that as much. So, they, you know, I think, I think first of all, um, I also never defined what meaningful means. So I, even that is a big research question. What, what is a meaningful gameplay experience? For whom, you know? Um, so I think, I think I realized the theory, the theoretical concepts are are too abstract to really understand that. So I think the mixture of theorizing and empirical studies are interesting. And I really like the idea of, you know, as, 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 as you said, like to look at crises um, or different life phases and compare that, look at different media forms, different forms of play or, or, you know, using of technology, I think is worth doing it. But as I said, I would say this is a start. Like, I think it really has to be developed further. And I think it's, it's, it could, could lead to something. So I, I just had a question kind of about the idea of purposeful games. Yeah. And I, I know at one point you said um, kind of games don't really do anything and they only kind of just open the door. What about um, games like Fold It, um, where kind of the, the gameplay is literally being used by scientists to help solve complex problems or even, yeah. you know, something from the 90s, that, that SETI at home kind of yeah. screensaver where you form teams and that, you know, if you ran your screensaver, your team could process these yeah. images. Where do they fit into the idea of purposeful games? Because yeah. the, the actual gameplay is doing something in the, in the world. I, I, is it just a kind of an anomaly in this system or? Um, it, it's, it's, it's funny. So um, another game that I would put in this group is Remission, the cancer game. You know, because like I'm, you might have known that game, like a game designed for kids with cancer. They don't like to take medicine because they lose hair and get sick. The game, you play, you know, Roxy and you shoot with, with medicine on cancer cells and really it had an impact. 30% of the kids took their medicine afterwards. Interesting, what they never really say in the study, they thought, they also questioned, does it improve your life? And it's like, no, why? I still have cancer, you know, like I play remission, I take my medicine, but you know, that game doesn't solve 
you know, my problem. And I think it's an important thing, and I realize that often that games are folded or remission. If, if I talk about impact of serious games and question them, they're like, no, no, we know, because, you know, remission is proven, and folded, you know, like you really change, change the world. I think these are very interesting. These are very, very interesting games because they really also had a theory of change. They also said, we're going to change the world by, you know, getting research further, or what we really want is people take their medicine. So I think I would not research this field if I would say that this is no way, you know. I think there is a big potential, but it is way more complicated than a lot of people think. So to have a theory of change in mind, to know what change you really want, and to think about how that game might impact change is something that designers should really think about and researchers should really measure. So if games like this wouldn't exist, I would not be talking about purposeful games probably. I would just smash them. And I think I think I think there is a potential and 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 I think we have not been the, we there are not too many very good games out there yet. Um, but some. So I think I think this is starting. So let's fast forward, say, seven, eight years, and you're the remission chair of serious games at Digital Games University, wherever. Uh, and and the, the, the faculty come to you and say, Constantine, we want to do a certificate program in, in purposeful games, right? Yeah. Um, so, so you would be teaching students who want to create purposeful games all the things they need to know to to lead the program, well, not all of them, but you know the things they the, the conceptual yeah. skills they need to learn to lead the program and go. Okay, I'm going to change the world through through purposeful games. What are what are some concepts for courses and course material that you would uh, that you would want to be included in mm -hmm. that certificate program? Like, what are the what are the the really core conceptual things that you would want people to learn uh, in that process? So. Good thing is, in seven years, there's going to be so much new research that I can use. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be like, it's going to be a completely different world. No, so um, that's a good question. So um, I honestly, I, I honestly believe um, that you don't help anybody if we pretend that you don't have a problem. Though, so I think there is a lot of serious games talk out there that is kind of like pretending that this is we have, the problem is solved. We can design serious games and change the world. No. No, it's not solved. This is an interesting problem, and I think it's worth, you know, working on design. So, for instance, what we did in the IIP class here is to look at, to to analyze the design of serious games, to look at bad practice examples and also good practice examples. is definitely an approach that is useful to understand an idea of what an interesting serious games could be, but also to kind of like get an idea of um, the research that is going on in this field. To and you know, like one thing that I definitely have in mind. So if I would ever get the chance to do that, I would say, you know what? If you really think you can change the world, go out there and find me the problem and talk to these people. If it would just start there, I, it would be such a better start if they have a sense of the problem, you know? Because often you have an NGO paying a designer um, in New York to make a game about a problem they don't care about at all. And they do that to get money for the game project they want to work on anyway. They, are not, they don't identify with the problem. And, and what I like in the interviews, what I find with designers, they, they go where the problems are and they try to understand the problem and research the problem to also develop an interesting mechanic about that. So definitely doing that more and also developing culture of that would be interesting. And furthermore, as a researcher, sorry, they hired me for that job, but I'm, I'm definitely a researcher. So I would say um, if purposeful games are designed to have an impact on the players in real life, 
we have to understand if this is really true. So researching that has to be also part of the design. So to also start, how can we do empirical studies with this game? What does that mean? What forms of assessment are we going to use? And to imply that in the games and also, so they would also have to, an understanding of that and, and know how to work with researchers. And so maybe have teams with different you know, positions and then um, maybe cycle and you know, researching a game of somebody else and getting, getting in there soon. So I, I think it would be something, a mixture of um, understanding the problems, understanding change, designing games, realizing what design aspects are interesting, but also methods, methods of designing. And, um, and maybe, if I'm clever, I'm also going to give them something about marketing and do that, what serious games are good in right now. Communicate about the games you do. And, uh, because one thing that we realize, a lot of good games, for instance, Cat and the Cool, um, there are two researchers that did the game, and if they would not have won some prizes, people would not know about that game. And they say, you know, you, you can make the best purposeful game ever. Nobody cares. So you have to have channels to communicate that. And I think that's probably something you also have to know as a purposeful game designer, but as a game designer in general, you have to really have to think a way to get out there and to also make money with that. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the talk. Uh, so my question is about the definitions that you have of transformation yeah. and impact uh, again, and uh, so the the and also how much the, those definitions are subject to change because it seems as if you're starting from a certain definition yeah. and, and then you're pursuing yeah. your purposeful games to to, yeah. to achieve it. And part of the reason for the question is, well, one is that we have a, a lot of people feel that non-purposeful games have a great deal of impact. I mean, uh, Ian yeah. described it as, as time-wasting, but even you know, the, the kind of cliche of, of games yeah. and violence, for example. And so we could say learn from those games that uh, well, repetitive behavior and, and simulation trains people to behave in certain, way, certain ways. So why not just uh, do that? Or if you find that propaganda games actually yeah. are the most effective for yeah. kind of transformative uh, uh, experience, uh, uh, then does that change purposeful games? Then do you make games that are like uh, first-person shooters in some way? Or do you make games that are like these propaganda games that you seem to, to, to loathe? Yeah. So, right, so part of the question is then, right? If, if, in some sense, it's kind of begging the question, right? Yeah. right you have uh, the cat and the coup rises to the top because of your definition of uh, yeah. transformative experience. And yeah. so you could still keep making those kind of games, but, yeah. uh, but it's a bit of a different question for impact. I mean, if a game gets people out on the streets that has big, big games components, yeah. is that going to be more? more impactful. So um, thank you for the question. So that's, that's the, this is the ch change we had to do yesterday. Because, so first of all, I have to say, um, I wish I would still be one of these researchers that comes up with a definition in the 70s and then does that the next 40 years and say like, you know, like I'm repeating and proving. And um, I also don't want to be a researcher that is changing his definition every week. But I think what I try to do is have phases where I say, well, this is my theoretical approach. This is the theories I use. This is my concept of transformation right now. I study, and then I have to go back to the paper and realize, wow. For instance, um, I wrote my PhD about recursive learning, and um, so it, which is learning through failure. But then I realized that's one element of a transformative experience, and maybe not even always. You know, so um, that's that's how I approached more into transformative learning. And when then when you look at the research, you have like different aspects and people who hate each other, and then they say, no, transformation is. So, for instance, Keegan at Harvard says transformation is really just if your perspectives change. If your pe perspectives don't change, this is not transformation. Other people say, for instance, um, when I at Gambit gave a class at, on, I talked about transformation, they were like, oh, I know what you mean. Every time I look at the building, I think, how can I climb up there? I cannot even stop. I walk, I see a building, and I think, you know, through playing um, Assassin's Creed, I'm thinking if I, if I do that, I, and he says, like, my brain is just doing that. And they said, well, that's a transformative experience. 
So I think there are different forms of transfer happening. And you know, and a lot of people would say, well, what if the thing you do up there is, you know, very, you know, what we really like, educational, for instance. So we make something like World of Warcraft, but um, everything is about science. So you're a specialist in that. That is also a form of, of transfer. So, and again, I think one thing that I had to learn, every game has a purpose. Um, you know, and sometimes the purpose is engagement, and um, and sometimes the purpose is, addi is addiction. You know, sometimes they really want people to get addicted to the game and play it and tell their friends. Um, I think the difference, and that's the that's the thing I work with right now, is these games are the ones that ha the purpose is not just the aim of the game and engagement. They really want to have an impact on life. And when you talk to designers, I definitely got. From the interviews I did, everyone had a different definition of change. You know, sometimes they say they want to have make people curious. Others say they want people definitely to sign a petition against, you know, Darfur. Um, or so they always have a certain idea about that. So what I think my future in this would be is I want the designers to tell us what their definition of transformer is and then research that. Because I think for me that's the only way to go. Because of course I as a researcher can say, well, I see this. And then when a designer tells me, no, we really just wanted to make people get interested. Well, then let's research if that happened or not. Um, I hope that answered your question a little. Um, or, no? It begins to. I mean, this, the second part was just how that transforms your practice for game design. Because yeah. if you find that the answer to this question for purposeful design is a kind of game that you actually find to be a banal type of game or kind of yeah. interesting, then do you actually move into that kind of a game design? Right. Yeah. So how much does this research outcomes? It because you could have an aesthetic practice that's yeah. somewhat separate from the kind of research for for a transformation. A lot of people in, in, in the arts produce works that might not say be extremely uh, yeah. popular, but but have effect on a small number of, of people. Yeah. No. I, I totally agree and, and in this project as I said I work with Nara and she's a conceptual artist and every time like I'm saying she's like oh my god you know artists would never do that you know we we don't want to have that impact on our audience like like that's not how art works or even like you know um, you know you I, we were sometimes choking what what is a serious book for instance what is a serious song you know like like we don't have you know like people don't say you know I want to write a book you know people probably the Bible or Mein Kampf might be books who are really written to they want to have impact, you know, um, but, but, but most authors don't, that's not the way they approach a book. They don't say, you know, so I want to change people and therefore going to write this book. Um, so in, in my case, I just realized I came in more with the recursive learning theory based on a phenomenological approach with Husserl and Heidegger. And I realized, well, that's pretty good in theory. In practice, it looks a bit different when we talk about games. Right now, for instance, I realize I, the social aspect is very important. So. Um, all the interviews I did, every time they talk about a transformative experience, in my definition, they were saying, they were ta talking about other people too. And maybe not people that were there. Maybe it was about not being social and not being liked or having problems with parents. So I realized transformative experiences are always social. So therefore, I, I come to the conclusion, if purposeful games want to have an impact on transformation, they they have to have a cer certain social um, dimension, and most serious games are single-play online games. So this is the reason why we now, in the summer, for instance, will try to use transformation, but get the element of not just subversion, but also a social element, so a, a multiplayer game. And um, so I think, so this is how I approach, and, and then I will know, you know, then it will, I will learn more and, and go on, I think. So it's gonna be developed further. Thanks. Thanks. The, the idea of transformation and and all the discussion around it yeah. echoes very much the 
uh, impact discussion about television, mm -hmm. for example, in the 60s and so on, and also the discussion about uh, the context, uh, for, for example, Fisk works and uh, others. And I've been wondering what, what is different in games yeah. than in other sorts of media, for example, television. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different theories about that. One element that definitely is interesting for me is the interaction. Um, that's something you don't really have in, in, a, in a media form like television. So for instance, in Sweatshop, the, the game I showed you, um, it is a difference if you see a documentary about sweatshops or if you get in the position of, of, of understanding the system by interacting with it. I think. I think this is the big potential I see with games. Of course, I, I realize there are this, this concept of immersion and, and, but that's every, you know, like you open up new problems. Um, and, and again, you know, like I, I, for instance, I'm a person um, who, who when I watch a movie, I really fall into it. Like I'm, I, I kind of like lose track of time. And um, that's the reason why I like that media form. And, and for instance, my wife, she goes in the restroom while the movie's going on. So she's like leaves the room and I'm like, should I pause? And she goes like, no. I'll be back, and I'm like, so you don't like the movie? And she's like, yeah, I love it. Just don't, I just don't care if I'm gone for two minutes. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like I have to rewind and then I have to tell her what happened. And she's like, she, so her approach to that media form is completely different, you know? And so I realize um, even there is, is people use media in different forms. They get, and, 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 and you know, in certain lifetimes, certain media forms have a, have a different impact on them. Um, so I like you know for instance one of the reasons I never played World of Warcraft is because I knew this I would have a problem stopping this game I I'm gonna be immersed I'm gonna be engaging in this community and I am a person who would do that so I I really should not start that you know because I also want to have a job and and stuff like that and for, you know and there are p players that are really good in that they can handle that easily I I would have known that I would have troubles you know because I really get passionate about the stuff I do and uh, so that would have been a problem and I think the other the other part of it is you can just as you said turn the whole argument around and let's talk about violence in games you know so so um, that's that's the fun part for me about you know I my beginning about video games was I, I had to look at all these studies about violence and have to recommend the Austrian government if they should ban video games like in Germany or not and I was looking at the studies and I, I realized first of all they are, you know, like I don't really trust empirical studies too much. I think there is big potential, but it's complicated. But even here, I realize it's so much about the context. It's so much what the player brings to the play experience. And also, let's just think the same thing with television. What do you bring to that experience? What, it, it, I, I, honestly, I don't want to, you know, like let's talk about my, my gaps in the research. So, for instance, um, I'm also discussing with Abelard about this. So, this is a, a concept to analyze the cohesiveness and coherence of a game system in, based on the purpose of the game. Um, on the other hand, I already showed research that's saying, well, it really depends on the player. So first of all, and this is my major problem right now. So on one hand, it is a lot about the design. On the other hand, it's a lot about the player and the context of what he's playing. And you know, where do you start? So that's why, why people like Ian Bogost or Manny, Mary Flanagan, or they would say, well, so it's all about the design. You know, you, I'm going to design an experience and people will eat it. And, and other people say, no, 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 you know, um, people get different stuff out of games. And I think you have to find something in between. And I think it really has to be researched. I, I think it's a very interesting research question and not a problem we can solve tomorrow. And, and again, yes, you're right. I think we had that problem with different media forms before. And I, I think we didn't find very good solutions back at that time, too. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask some about your practice as a game maker. Yeah. You know, you collaborated on Afterland. Now, you talked a lot about how um, the the really effective uh, use of uh, purposeful games here, the, the way in which they work, is yeah. when uh, designers who are, very, who are really engaged yeah. in a topic, not yeah. just this uh, uh, some game designer who really has another project yeah. who's in New York and, yeah. and uh, in, uh, you know, a nonprofit hires a person yeah. to do something, but people who really care about this, you know, get yeah. involved. Um, now, my impression of Afterland, I'm not sure about this, is that probably you didn't start from a, a passionate uh, concern about the issue that you have friends who are collecting trash yeah. in their apartments and, and even though you looked at them a little bit strangely, they just walked off and it was, it was, I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something where it was, it was rooted in that particular issue, yeah. but it was um, a, a little bit higher level engagement with yeah. the expectations of gaming yeah. and so forth. So I guess I want to know about the, this, this distinction between, you know, on the one hand, you want to be a, a, a dispassionate, uh, yeah. neutral researcher uh, looking over these these yeah. uh, uh, different games that are made. But on the other hand, it's the people who are really engaged as as practitioners and yeah. designers who are producing like the most effective outcomes for yeah. themselves, you know, and for others. And practice is part yeah. of what you're doing also. So, very important question. Um, so first of all, I also had to learn. So uh, uh, with Afterland, um, in the beginning we had three prototypes. And for instance, another prototype would have been that you have a small town where you get like, you know, you have to build up the town and you get resources from everywhere. And, and the more you play, the bigger the map gets. And suddenly you realize you take all that from third world countries. So, you know, in games you always get wood and water. And you, you never really care, you know, where it really comes from. So what if it gives you the sense of, well, you build up the town, you never cared about the resources. And by the way, you took it from, you know, developing countries. And so, you know, that would have been a completely a different prototype. I think the problem was even, I, looking back now, I realized Afterland is so abstract. Um, so, you know, like the story you just told are like with a, with a friend who's collecting trash that exists. Um, and, and he was asking like, why did you make a game about me? Um, but, you know, like, but, but a lot of other people gave me completely, like a guy told me that this game is about Austria invading um, Russia. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's very clear because here's this and here's this and the enemies and, and like, and I was like, no, like, okay, if you think this is what it is. So I think <laughs> well, one thing that I realized now is um, if I do a purposeful game, um, I also have like in, in Afterland is based on an abstract theory and therefore um, the narrative and everything um, is kind of like what we found to that. And I think now I would not approach that problem anymore. So for instance, one of the game designers from um, Sweatshop said, if you want to design a purposeful game, um, get out there and find uh, a problem, uh, an interesting problem that is transferable to a video game. And if you have not found that, then probably you should not do that game. And I think I, re I realized that's not an easy thing because I was like, well, okay, what, what problems are out there that we can pretty much put in a game? And he said like, well, that was very hard to find one, you know? <laughs> so it, it took them a lot of research in a the company. They looked at different problems in the world and said, well, sweatshops are an interesting one. Like, look at that mechanic. Look at the, how the companies are run. There is a certain mechanic that we can transfer to games. And I think right now I would say what I've learned, um, just to have a very abstract theory and then do a game, would not be enough now, I would focus on a very specific problem. And, and, and of course, it would be about the mechanic and about the narrative, but it would really say, like, this problem, this target group, these are the mechanics we want to use, because then I get closer to where I want. And even I might fail again. But I think in case of the Afterland, I was too much of a researcher. It was like, and, and especially I remember the first playtest where I told you with the nerd concept where people like, were like, 
no, I don't like this game. I was like, what do you mean you don't like this game? You know, like, I have to research this. I, you know, we were, tell me about your experience. And it's like, I don't have an experience. I just don't like the graphics. And it was for me, it kind of like, honestly, it was not an easy night for me, the first playtest round. And I realized, <laughs> you know, like, good that I wrote my PhD um, in, you know, in the library. Um, now, now we talk about real experiences. And um, yeah. I just want to follow up a little bit. I mean, it's a conversation a lot of folks have been having now, too, but this question of transformation. Mm -hmm. When I look at this, and, and I, I think when I hear about the way you've approached this idea of transformation, it's a very much sort of one person. And, and I look at this, I'm like, well, it's like a book. You know, it's like a book that conveys a different, yeah. or a movie, yeah. you know, and it has these different aspects to it. It teaches us something different. Now we reframe yeah. our understanding of the world as an individual. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, when I think about purposeful change in society, yeah. it's not just sort of what I think, yeah. uh, or that I, ha I need to think better somehow, or, and once everybody thinks yeah. better, then we'll have a better world. I don't know, you know, if that's enough to do it. Versus this other, I mean, I was thinking about Fold It and SETI and these other kinds of examples, and especially your comment that the people who have the most experience of transformation are those that design the games. Yeah. That may, isn't wouldn't that suggest then that that's the direction to go in? That yeah. rather than thinking we need a better propaganda mechanics to our games yeah. that conveys the message we want to convey better so yeah. people will now understand the Palestinian-Israeli yeah. conflict, that instead we want just a different idea, you yeah. know? Because I was imagining, like, so how would that work with Sweatshop? Instead of it being a game that shows you how sweatshops work, Instead, wouldn't it be interesting if you had some kind of platform where, say, I've got a half hour, yeah. I'd like to stop buying as much sweatshop clothing as I probably do, um, but I don't know what it is, you know, and, and that if there were some kind of game where I could spend a half hour, you know, going around, like, let me, what do I research and how do I do this? Yeah. And I'm worried about shoes or I'm worried about dresses or I'm worried about jeans and I'm going to spend my yeah. half hour now and, and what are the NGOs working on this and where is this, you know, that I could imagine a very different, you know, it, maybe it not, wouldn't look like a game. It wouldn't look yeah. like the same kind of game, but that's, to me, that would be, pers you know, purposeful, transformative, serious, yeah. and, and that it would maybe a place that I'd like yeah. to spend my 15, 20 minutes on the train. Uh, and, and so anyway, I, I guess that's oh. one of the things, you know, that, that to somehow think about, that I think yeah. you're right, purpose is, is you're right. That's one of the tr problems right now. Yeah. <laughs> so um, thank you. So first of all, one thing I want to say is, I totally agree. So I, I really much focus, I, I, but I will be honest, like I'm very interested in the individual. I'm like, I'm interested in what a single person is making out of something. Um, on the other hand, just just think about like serious games, like, you know, like I, I will say they are like, you know, fat white people making games about Africa, you know, like this, and, and I'm saying this as controversial as I mean it in the sense of, how dare us, you know, like this, you know, like really we have a big impact on what, what developing countries are and then we, we we have NGOs where people pay money to so they make games educationally and, and then there if you if you get further they have this sense of we have to get these games back to Africa so the kids can play it there and 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 you know and 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 this is this is highly you can even look at the narrative and like from a more cultural perspective historical perspective one day just imagine in 2000 when I get the job as the chair like at 2000 15 or 2030 when we look back at the serious games that were designed I know people are gonna laugh and they're gonna be like look at us look how we thought we can change the world with our concepts of Poverty for instance, you know, and, and so it's very it's very interesting also to look at the narrative on the other hand I totally agree so 
when you, when I compare that with the with the biographies, um, it is in part of a bigger bigger media context. So, um, one, my wife's gonna hate me for bringing her up all the time. So, but you will never know. <laughs> I'm ve sh short version. I'm vegetarian um, for because of food poisoning. She was never a vegetarian. She had. She was one of these people. If I don't eat meat, I get a little sick. You know, like I I think I I die. You know, like so I have to eat meat. And then we watched a documentary together that was about um, you know how how animals are treated. And I I remember the moment when it was about chicken, and she realized, well, my granddad had these chickens in the garden, and then it was about that a chicken never sees daylight, and it was the last time she had meat. You know, and. It was interesting because I, after that, um, we had like, she cooked chicken and she didn't want to eat it anymore and she never ate meat again. And when I do all my research and I was like, she's like, why are you doing this? And I'm like, you're one of my experiences. And she's like, no, no, it's you being a vegetarian. It's about my granddad and that he's dead and that I don't get chicken anymore. It is about watching that movie, reading articles. It is part of a big, big story. You know, it's a lot of things come together, and it's not just a documentary. The documentary was just there at the right point of time. So I think, so for instance, that company that, that does um, Sweatshop, Little Loud, they also made another game called The Curfew that is about um, media regulations, and you live in the future in 2030, I think it was, and you, you play as a player in a world, and it's completely narrative different. So it's really like small videos, but they did an excellent job in kind of like giving you the idea, how does it feel to live in a world where everything is regulated, where you cannot just access anything you want and get anything you want. And that game is super interesting. When we talked to designers, they were really saying, you know, you can make this game, but it has to be part of other stuff. So you should have different forms of media. So I think combining a game with a documentary or probably an online archive with different information would be this, I think, will have way more impact. So in the study that I would like to do, I would like to compare different contexts. So using a game with a further environment and without. And also what I think is even more important, do you have a problem related to that? You know, so I, I did a few studies with kids and serious games. They don't have a problem with the third world. You know, they, they don't see the connection. So I played another sweatshop game and they were like, what do I care about? And I was like, well, H&M is selling you t-shirts for $6 for a reason. And they're like, well, but that question is never brought up in the game. You know, not in, in this game more than in the other one. And I think it's important. So it will be interesting. So I think one, re one result of that study might be that a game without contextualizing just randomly out there or even forcing kids to do that in a classroom fails. Uh, but maybe if you have a context in different media forms and it suits in a biographical context, maybe there is a potential, but maybe not. You know? So I think I agree um, we have to have a broader context, different media forms, but even that has to be researched um, impact-wise. Constantine, thanks very much. This was really terrific. Uh, Thank afternoon. you, guys. Thanks. Thank you.